the more that we focus on prevention and create those prevention steps, address and dismantle the historic uh, instructional racism that's there, uh, attack and dismantle the economic disparities. I mean, the state of Michigan can literally make a hyper jump in 10 years. That's the voice of Jametta Lilly, CEO of the Detroit Parent Network. Today on Michigan's State of Health, we'll be talking to her about how COVID-19 has helped spark new efforts to address long-standing inequities in Michigan's healthcare system. Welcome to Michigan's State of Health, a podcast about reconnecting to care. I'm your host, Patrick Dunn. If you listened to our last episode, you'll know that we're focusing the first season of our podcast on how COVID-19 has helped to reveal major, long-standing gaps in Michigan's healthcare system and how it's catalyzed positive action to address those gaps. On today's episode, we'll begin digging deeper into some of the specific ways the pandemic has shifted our perspective and sparked change in our healthcare system. Today, we're starting with the topic of health equity. At the time of this recording, Black residents have represented 21% of Michigan's COVID-19 deaths, despite making up 14% of the state's overall population. That disparity has played out at a national level as well. In July, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that the risk of death from COVID-19 was twice as high for Black Americans and 2.3 times higher for Hispanic or Latino Americans than it was for white Americans. Sadly, those disproportionate statistics were nothing new for people of color. I recently talked with Jan Delatori, a program officer at the Michigan Health Endowment Fund, who said the inequities we observed during the pandemic are not just a one-time thing. When we think about inequities, we're really thinking about this uneven access to the conditions that allow us to attain the best versions of ourselves health-wise. The pandemic made clear for us that health inequities have been persisting for a really long time. With or without uh, COVID, we already had health inequities in terms of the positive health outcomes of Michiganders. Some group of Michiganders experienced a really high rate of asthma, um, obesity, all this chronic disease. What made it clear for us is that the pre-existing health inequities here in Michigan made the pandemic worse. However, Jan added that COVID has helped to raise awareness of bigger picture health inequities and the importance of addressing them. That's happened not only at the level of large institutions like governments and healthcare providers, but also at an individual level. Two weekends ago, I had a conversation about health equity with a friend of mine who's an engineer. Right. So to me, it's really about the cultural shift um, that the pandemic brought with it. And that's people hopefully taking um, seriously the uneven impact of not just uh, COVID, but also other diseases to, you know, different uh, racial and ethnic groups. Our featured guest today is a champion for health equity in Michigan who has also experienced health inequities firsthand during the pandemic. Jametta Lilly is the CEO of the Detroit Parent Network, a Detroit-based organization that describes itself as a network of parents working to build and engage parents and others to ensure every child has a champion. And last year, she answered the call to serve on the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities. We discussed the roots of Michigan's health inequities, 
how COVID has prompted new efforts to address them, and the next steps toward creating an equitable health system for all Michiganders. Here's our conversation. Jametta Lilly, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I am blessed, and it's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to have you here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are talking today, of course, about health equity, health inequity in Michigan, and the effects that the pandemic has had on those issues. COVID exposed a lot of inequities in our health system, but those inequities weren't new. How did COVID highlight the existing inequities in our healthcare system? Well, I think one of the things that I think was a rude awakening to a lot of people that have uh, been overlooking people that are in public health and in prevention in particular for for decades is that the very so-called health system that we have in this country is not really about health. Um, And it's not a system that is very caring if we use the word health care, because the reality is it's, it's set up predominantly to focus on people who are sick. And so we've got great technology, we've got great hospitals and systems for people that are sick, but rather than having a focus on prevention, where you have uh, community-based systems that that are connected to people, that people feel that they're invested in in terms of their own health and wellness, the absence of that as both a philosophy and an infrastructure in the country really became glaring. And I and I think we also cannot overlook how how fragmented healthcare is in this nation. And in Michigan is no exception. So even though we are, um, as a nation now, we have federally qualified health clinics, that's wonderful. We still have some, um, some free clinics. You know, we have health systems, we got public health departments. The reality is that, oh, and I can't uh, omit nursing homes. All of these are very separate silos. Um, and those silos are not designed well for coordination, uh, let alone to collaborate quickly and in a, in a meaningful and impactful way. And I think we saw how in those early days, there was a huge need. Uh, and, and, and in spite of the unbelievable lack of response or un- lack of intelligence at the federal level, that even at the state level and, and within the various uh, cities, et cetera, uh, it was a very difficult time, one, to understand what actually is this thing called COVID and how is it manifesting, how it's moving. But the the lack of significant coordination across those different silos, I think, was particularly challenging. And again, Michigan was not alone. I think Michigan really has some great things to, to pat ourselves on the back about. But but I really want to kind of start from there. I think it's important for us to realize we have a health care system issue in this country. So we have this fragmented system that's only, as you said, treating the sick and it sounds like, you know, from the, the picture you're painting, this system does not serve everyone as well as it should. But then there are also uh, folks who are being served even less well than certain other groups. How does that uh, inequity play out uh, within the, the problems of the system that you just articulated? 
Well, it's, we know there's already huge data that exists that talks about the health disparities and how those health disparities manifest, particularly along uh, racial lines. Uh, its greatest impact on you know Native American, uh, African Americans, Latinx, etc., as well as communities with special needs and quiet as is kept, folks in rural areas. Uh, there's a whole lot of, you know, white folks in rural areas that have been uh, misled to somehow think that these disparities are not systemic for them as well. Uh, they're impacted by them. So I think there's some some aspects of how the health inequities that exist were particularly virulent in their impact. Uh, I'll just use uh, Michigan. Um for example, you know, Michigan, we've been extraordinarily blessed because look at the leadership that we have. Look at the leadership team that we have with Governor Whitmer and Lieutenant uh, Gilchrist and, and Jonay Caldoun. I mean, so you're talking about highly competent, caring, action-oriented folks. You know, not not saying, oh, I don't believe in science or that doesn't, that's not us, uh, but really front and center saying, well, what do we do? How can we do it? But even with that level of understanding and trying to bring systems together, particularly in those early months, I think we're, we're particularly devastating. So the lack of access was a, a clear issue. Uh, the lack of uh, people's understanding of, okay, so now I think I have COVID. I go into an ER or urgent care. And what was the experience, particularly of a lot of black and brown people, was they got to those places and they were told, go home. Um, I can personally, I know people who went, had all the symptoms, basically didn't go in February, early March until they were like almost dragging sick. And had physicians say, well, I'm not going to give you the COVID test, but what I recommend to you is that you go home to do this. You know, I, I am not a gambling woman, but I would take my next paycheck and say, show me one incident where that happened in a Bloomfield Hills or a Birmingham and those uh, in white communities, upper class communities. You didn't see that kind of implicit bias, that kind of systemic racism on the part of the attitude of people. Uh, so I, I want us to talk about there's the issue of access and then there's the issue of experience once black and brown people and, and, and indigenous people go to healthcare providers to get help. Uh, and I'm sure the stories are going to be emerging more and more, uh, what people experience. And, and I, can, I can speak to even some tragedies in my own family of witnessing uh, the lack of responsiveness on the part of the healthcare providers. Not to say they weren't overwhelmed, not to say that they were struggling with some of these same issues. So I'm not negating that. But in these kind of circumstances, you know, it, it means that you have to ramp up in a different way. The other thing about access and then implicit bias was uh, infrastructure issue. Uh, and in fact, it's one that the coronavirus uh, task force, the racial disparities task force, was one of the issues that was discussed, which was um, to the credit, again, of establishing that group to say, well, what are the systems in place to help mitigate the, the realities on the ground? So another reality on the ground was, okay, so in... Um, in many African-American and Latinx and certainly indigenous communities, the households are multi-generational. Mm -hmm. 
They're multi-generational, and uh, people, as a result of the lack of economic opportunities, are living two and three families in the same. So how do you how do you isolate in a house with two bedrooms and seven people? You, you can't. You cannot do it in such a way that it is safe. So people, if even if they did get a little information about, well, this is how you can try to isolate. Uh, you know, we, we've all heard the, the, the really tough stories of, of people who went home, uh, literally uh, closed off a bedroom and tried to uh, self-isolate. Well, in many households, that, that was an option. You had communities that were in need of places to actually go to be isolated. And, and there was some forward movement of looking at creating hotels or shelters in which where people, if they didn't have that option at home, could in fact go to those facilities. But that, it, again, is an infrastructure issue of, of how do you ramp that up? How do you create this COVID free environment for people who have COVID, okay? And then once they're in that place, how do they communicate back to their loved ones and what kind of setting do they go back in? So issues of access, the inherent and ongoing systemic racism and biases that uh, have been there played out, even in cities like Detroit, which are you know predominantly African-American, when they still went to certain hospitals, it, they had those same um, experiences, not necessarily out in, in the suburbs. And then the issue of the lack of infrastructure and the lack of personnel to quickly do contact tracing to help people isolate meant that there were more people exposed than we would have liked to have seen. I mean, in, in the best case scenario, we had way too much exposure, and then we didn't have the systems in place for people to be safe, and we had so many um, essential workers that are in uh, the black and brown communities, many of which unfortunately have chronic diseases, so that exacerbates it. So it, it was a perfect storm in, in many places in, in those first couple of months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and what you're talking about is is interesting because it ties into something that uh, we've thought about a lot with the State of Health series and talked about on the podcast series even so far, which is the social determinants of health. You know, all those things that uh, are in your life and impact your health, even though you know it's not just an issue of are you eating well? Do you have insurance or whatever? As you just mentioned, you've got uh, employment. You know, folks of color were working more of those essential jobs. They were in more of those multi-generational households. So their mm -hmm. employment situation, their housing, all these other things were uh, affecting their status and where they fit into the overarching situation of the pandemic. Yeah. I would offer that the, we're, I think we're using the wrong term when we say social determinants of health. It, it puts the onus back on the individual as if it is the majority of it is behavior. It's, mm. you know, it's, it's what I choose to do. Uh, perhaps another way of just, just, let's call it what it is. They're the economic disparities. These economic disparities create the health disparities that we see. They create and fester the, uh, the poor outcomes that we see in education, in, in workforce, in job employment. So it's important for people to understand that because of the, uh, the lack of equity and the economic disparities structurally, 
that everything uh, that we try to do as a nation, and in particular in health, um, is adversely impacted by that. And until we address those issues, um, we're not going to move forward. And obviously, uh, both the economic uh, inequities that are tied and linked absolutely to racial disparities and uh, racial uh the racism that really is a public health issue, which I really appreciate uh, our governor here in Michigan calling it like it is. Uh, but having said that, then what is what are the antidotes that we bring to the table to begin to address it mm-hmm. are so important. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, some some stories of tragedy in your own family associated with the systemic racism that's happened during the pandemic. Um, are you willing to share any of those right now? Sure. Uh, my sister-in-law uh, and, in fact, my brother-in-law uh, both contracted COVID in the early months mm-hmm. uh, in, in February. In fact, uh, we learned, uh, we went to one of the hospitals, um, it was uh, St. John on the east side, that they were one of, the fir- one of their first cases. And, unfortunately, my brother-in-law succumbed to COVID. Mm. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so he succumbed to it. My sister-in-law was discharged. She was discharged to a nursing home. Uh, the nursing home that she was discharged to was, was, was not one of the better nursing homes. Uh, it didn't have a high rating. And basically, uh, the family that was doing the caretaking, uh, her children, for reasons that remain tragically unclear and painful to my husband and I, they didn't reach out to us. And, and consequently, they believed that my sister-in-law was getting the level of care that she needed. And in fact, she had overcome COVID, we learned. Mm. But uh, after s- several months uh, with inadequate and poor care, she was sent back to the hospital on a Monday. We saw her for the first time on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. She weighed 50 pounds less than she did, covered in bed sores with infections, and died that following Friday. Now, you may say, well, those kind of things happen. No, those are the kinds of things that blow up, and there are hundreds of families that can speak to these tragedies of where loved ones were put into nursing homes with inadequate staffing, uh, with families that didn't know how to engage or advocate for them. Uh, I do remember our nephew saying, well, they made me think that she was okay. Now, of course, you know, we're, we're saying, and this is the first time I'm really talking about this publicly, you know, we're saying, well, good Lord, didn't you understand you can't take their word for it? Mm. You know, so I'm still a little bit struggling with, you know, how do we eventually circle back? Because, by the way, I did contact uh, people at the hospital to try to say, I think this is an opportunity to learn. I mean, obviously, uh, we are not the people that legally had responsibility for them. Their, their children did, so on and so forth. But we are family members, and we were never contacted. All of our family at some points had been in that hospital, including my, my, my in-laws, my parents, and we helped take care of. But the, the social workers never contacted us. Mm. So we, in fact, did not know that our brother-in-law, uh, even though we had been calling, going by the house, we didn't know where he was. We didn't know that he had passed, and we didn't know how to, uh, about my sister-in-law to be able to positively intervene. Wow. I must share with you that I have heard this story from others uh, without me talking about my own. And in this case, these were healthy, working-class families, had their own home, uh, living their life in retirement, yes, in their early 70s. And by the way, without other comorbidities. 
but I've also engaged as, as Detroit Parent Network. We talk to our families. We are trying to find out very early how can we help you. Uh, and we were hearing consistently, well, my aunt has COVID, and we, and we don't really know where we're supposed to put her. Or my my grandmother is in a facility. We can't see her. We're really worried about her. We don't know what to do. So people are trying to juggle the the grief, the lack of understanding of healthcare systems, uh, not being able to get through to the doctors. Uh, and as you already know, there's not enough primary care physicians. There are not enough nurses. And so in communities of color where everyone doesn't have a medical home or, or, or Dr. Welby type, right, that, that you know by name, those kind of relationships don't necessarily exist. So that lack of continuity, that lack of relationships, the lack of having community health workers working closely with the systems to communicate and just... Um, I will say love on and support individuals going through these trials really help to exacerbate people, their their social emotional status, let alone their, their health status. But so now, you know, how do we begin to address this at the at the communal level, whether it's at, you know, in our faith based situations, our, our mental health providers, there's a lot of unfinished, you know, in education we talk about the unfinished learning that COVID has done. There's a lot of unfinished uh, social emotional grief, resentment, anger, guilt around this at, at, at the individual level that I think, um, I think we need to be thinking about how can we help people with that at the personal level. And then we've got to move backwards and really do a gap analysis, I think, of where were those gaps? So we've got these many inequities in the system. We've got these social determinants, or as you put it, economic disparities that are coming into play. Did the pandemic help to uh, expose any of those to kind of a wider audience or to raise more interest in addressing them? I, I think it did. Uh, now, I think it took some time because as as we know, <laughs> I mean, we're still in the midst of a country that is, you know, Patrick, deep in denial. But I think to your question, do more people see it? I think so. I think just like, and we can't, we can't overlook this, at the same time we're in this extraordinary, wow period of, of our nation, a pandemic, the second one in 100 years. Finally, there was, you know, people are at home, we're, like you and I, we're Zooming with each other, we're looking at our space through this thing called a computer or our our phones, and, and we see incident after incident after incident of the public lynchings of particularly, you know, black men, but also black women. And so the George Floyd movement, our sister Brianna Taylor and others, helped more people to begin to say, wait a minute, you know, a lot of folks have been talking about structural racism and how it manifests for decades I think I'm beginning to see it because it was so glaring and clear mm. with police brutality, but not just police brutality, a system of injustice. You know, the whole system that supports that from the unions to the to the AGs, you know, et cetera. So now we see inordinate and high depths of, of black and brown people through COVID. And there's more understanding about, oh, this isn't just something that's at a micro level. It exists because of systems issues. Mm -hmm. I've seen more awareness of that 
when particularly, you know, we talk to students. Um, and I think you see it even with more folks that are outside of urban areas. I think there are more people who live in the suburbs, even rural areas. I think rural areas are really getting it now because, uh, unfortunately, because they have, in many cases, kind of bought in that this is something that impacts you other people, mm. you know. If, if if you if you if you vote a certain way or you look a certain way, but now we see you know the the hospitalization and death rates just zooming literally in um, other communities, you know particularly white communities across the country, um, but and you see now activists emerging or not necessarily activists people emerging saying there's something wrong with this system, you know how do we begin to fix it? Uh, so I think there's increased awareness about racism and this nation, about how it exists structurally. But I think also there's an understanding that poverty and lack of economic opportunity is the other, uh, the other demon that this country has to also address because it undermines the quality of life that all of us deserve, particularly in the most, uh, the richest nation in the world. So I think more people are aware of it and now, of course, the awareness has to move to action. And I think that there were recommendations that came out of the governor's task force that, that I'm proud with, you know, colleagues from all different walks uh, that were made, whether it's talking about implicit bias training. Um, the work group that I had the, the, the privilege, quite frankly, to be a part of um, and to co-chair for a while was telehealth, was, you know, recognizing that access is an issue the digital divide is an issue, so we ought to be talking about internet for all, so everyone can have the access, the devices, and the training that they need to take advantage of whether it's whether it's talking to your physician or talking to your mental health provider, uh, whether it's to be able to do a job application to get back to work, and certainly. The, the big issue that was out there that was also challenging, which was this whole thing of online education. There were some other really great things that developed out of the task force, like more of a focus on primary care providers, that we've got to make sure people know who their medical home is, that it's, it's quality, that it is um, making sure that people have appropriate training in not only implicit bias, but cultural competency and all those other kinds of factors. We still got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I know that our administration's interested in that, but the reality is, is that it's, it's going to take everyone uh, working together and demanding some accountability of, for these kind of systemic improvements. You've mentioned antidotes to these inequities uh, that we see and, and the idea of healing these economic disparities. With this raised awareness that uh, we talked about, have you been seeing any initiatives that have been popping up to start creating some of those antidotes and doing some of that healing? Let me hit on two that I think are a great example. Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist uh, has a really strong technology background and is absolutely committed and understands how important technology is around equity. And very early um, when, you know, myself and others were saying things like, we really ought to have an Internet for all policy across everything in the state. I mean, his head was like, yeah, I know we do. Uh, well, now the reality with the American Rescue Act, there's actual funding that helps, that's going to help make that happen. 
Um, and, and not hopefully where it's just giving money to corporations, whether it's a, a Comcast or the AT&Ts of the world, but also looking at community development where we know there can be systems and, and hot spots created in communities that we can train people we can build up the workforce to do this work uh, the training that uh, that we can get devices to people that we can train people to use that so this whole notion of internet access and internet for all I, I think we're going to be in an entirely different place a year from now throughout the state of Michigan and probably in fact throughout the country I think the other thing that I'm excited about, um, I've been long a proponent, uh, whether I was in behavioral health or working in, in public health more on the primary and maternal health side, uh, infant mortality reduction, we had always been saying for our kids, you know, why is it that we don't have health clinics in every school? You know, how is it, particularly in, in districts that have, you know, high levels of poverty, we know that families don't have consistent access to, um, to health care. That's easily resolvable. So by having, let's make sure that literally every school has a school nurse. And that we are doing work to um, have a prevention framework that unites with the community health agencies in communities that works with the FQHCs and others. That the school-based health clinic is a system that's integrated, so it doesn't matter whether our kiddos walk in at age five; they're getting the pediatric care that they need. Now, my understanding is so I know DPSCD is put as part of their plan to have. Uh, a, if not a, a nurse, uh, if not a full clinic, at least a nurse in every school. And DPSED is the Detroit Public Schools Community District. Community District. Detroit, right. And so I'm wondering, okay, that's great, Detroit Public Schools Community District. You know, I just think that's so awesome, uh, the kind of planning that and leadership Dr. Beattie's provided. Uh, they also have the benefit of an outstanding uh, pediatrician, uh, Dr. Elliot Atisha. And I know this is the kind of thing that he's wanted to do for, for, for decades. But these are now examples that I'm hoping that will become part of the infrastructure of the state. Now, here's a question. <laughs> okay, so you create these school-based clinics and you now have a nurse in every school. Uh, let's, let's make sure there's coordination of care between the pediatrician or between the, the, the OB-GYN and, you know, all of those kind of dynamics. So th there's a whole lot of great things that can happen there. But who's going to pay for that after the ARA month's money is over? So now the question becomes, how, how is it that philanthropy, corporations, and advocates can make it really clear to our insurance system that these are processes that you know, the evidence is already there. We know these things create better health outcomes. Uh, so the issue is, you can no longer say you can't fund it. You've got to fund it. These funds, I, I believe there are a lot of folks that, you know, are doing ha literally a happy dance. Uh, now the question becomes, what is our state legislature going to do to release these funds uh, such that they can get dispensed through the various departments and get distributed? Uh, because contrary to a lot of people understand, there are people who know how to do this work. 
for example, I mean, there, there's wonderful foundations from the Michigan Health Endowment Fund to, to Kellogg's to the Kresge Foundations that have, um, Robert Wood Johnson that have funded initiatives that show great outcomes for preventative health. That's particularly if it's coordinated and integrated across all these different sectors. So the models are there. Uh, now we just have to have the political will and to engage the folks who make those those final decisions and build that into policy and then ensure that we have legislators in place who are putting the health and wellness of citizens first. Um, and yes, that may have some real balloon costs that we have to see in three years. But our costs will be reduced. They'll be reduced because we won't have as high hospitalizations. We won't have as high job absenteeism. We won't have as many kids missing school. So the more that we focus on prevention and create those prevention steps, address and dismantle the historic uh, instructional racism that's there, uh, attack and dismantle the economic disparities. I mean, the state of Michigan can literally make a hyper jump in 10 years, mm. you know, instead of being at, we know, you know, we're at the bottom of everything, literally, <laughs> whether it's, you know, health or education. Uh, Cause we've, we've allowed um, politicians to disinvest in the things that we know make a difference, whether it's quality housing, et cetera. So that's where I think the awareness of a more holistic prevention framework and bringing p- people together of goodwill to genuinely collaborate, break down silos, and and so importantly, uh, and this is where for certainly the work that I do with DPN, is that we're saying parents, families have to be part of the co-design of these systems and their repair. It is about us reimagining what is our best possibility and then getting busy to create the policies and the funding systems to address that and to do it in an equitable way. I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm not naive, but but I'm I'm certainly hopeful that we're at a a different place, particularly if we can get these funds released and then we can in a more planful way because, you know, it's not like we've had a long time to plan, but hopefully those funds get distributed in an equitable way that brings uh, communities together and and not just the same old people making the same old decisions the way it's kept the same old system moving. We've got to have fresh blood different voices at the table, a multidisciplinary and a a multi-sector approach, uh, I believe, in terms of improving the health outcomes in the state. Further down the road, looking back, what do you think we're going to see as far as COVID's long-term impact on health equity in Michigan? I've seen evidence. Okay, so sometimes I don't want to talk about beliefs. (laughs) It's, It's about what you see. So we see evidence that more people are picking up the understanding of what is equity and trying to explore that. And what does that mean for my organization? What does that mean for my my business? What does that mean for my household? If we can begin for people to say equity is putting more, putting the funding and putting the focus where it's most needed and to create preventative systems that prevent us from becoming sick and that prevent us from losing jobs or prevent us from having poor educational outcomes, that would be huge. And then if we're being introspective to say, well, how how does my organization or how does my behavior 
contribute to that. Um, that's a journey that I think I, I see more of us on. In, in some ways, I know the word equity is like, I like to call it the, the flavor of the week. And so at one point, you know, we went from collaboration, then it became collective impact, you know, all these, these buzz terms that get out there. Um, but I think my hope is that equity and a focus on dismantling those systems that perpetuate, um, structural racism, cause, cause that's a, I just said a whole lot, dismantling structures and then racism. Those are three kind of huge concepts. But I think if our educational systems, whether it's for nursing care, doctors, uh, educators, uh, social workers, psychologists, et cetera, if we begin to pay more attention to that and, and create those equitable systems uh, and make sure that we are doing that out of that equity lens and then holding each other accountable for that, I think we'll see some, some real significance. Well, Jametta, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. It's really been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of Michigan State of Health. Thanks again to Jametta Lilly and Jan Delatori for joining us. Please join us next week when Dr. Kathy Dollard and Megan Dahl of MidMichigan Health will join us to discuss how the pandemic has affected the way we think about caring for Michigan's older adults and the unique program they developed to help isolated seniors connect with others during the pandemic and beyond. Michigan State of Health is produced, written, and edited by me, Patrick Dunn. Estelle Slutmaker is our consultant and the author of the State of Health feature story series, which you can read at secondwavemedia.com. Sarah Jean Baker is the project manager for State of Health. Our theme music is Autumn Day by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is made possible through the support of the Michigan Health Endowment Fund. Thanks for joining us today. Stay safe, be well, and we'll see you next time.